Welcome to another episode of the Silk by Slash podcast, where we focus on tactical company building advice with founders, operators, and investors who have built some of the most legendary tech companies on the planet. Today, I'm joined by the founder of Denmark's most valuable growth company, Jeppe Rindam, co-founder and CEO of Plio. Founded in 2015, Plio provides company credit cards and expense reporting for its over 20,000 customers. To get there, Plio has scaled to some 700 employees in the past seven years and raised over 400 million euros in funding, most recently at a four and a half billion euro valuation. Together with Jeppe, we're going to unpack hard-won advice from a long Plio's journey. We're going to start with the steps that led him to found the company, continue with everything that happened before product market fit, and finish off with that which has learned about scaling himself and the company in more recent times. Let's go to the episode. Jeppe, it is really exciting to have you on the Soak by Slash podcast. I've been looking forward to this. Thank you for making the time to join us here today. Well, I've been looking forward to this. I actually just returned from paternity and you guys were prioritized as one of my first things to do. We, we love that. You're too kind. So I want to start with you founding Plio and everything that took you to product market fit. And then secondly, I want to explore selected topics about scaling yourself as a leader and scaling the system that sort of scales the company post product market fit. All right, well, then going back to the time before you actually founded Plio, and I noticed you and your co-founder, Nicolo, were both early employees of TradeShift, another growth company, and I think you joined TradeShift in 2010. So let's imagine that it was 2010 all over again, and you knew you would found a company five years down the road. Going, If you could go back, would you still go be an operator at another growth company, or is there like a better place in the world to, to learn critical skills to become a founder? I think it's a good idea to be a part of a technology company for a few years to see a lot of different things at different stages and get those learnings. I think the network you get, which can become handy when you need to build a team, but also all the good things and all the errors are just really handy. I, I think there is for me coming from a non-tech background, there was just a general learning around tech companies and how they operate that was just you know good learning for me i also think that trade shift it was the first small company that i have ever worked for and setting up people for success in a very trust-based delegated way was new for me and that not only motivated nico and i to build on some of the same values when we founded Pleo, it also motivated us to build our product on the same philosophy Cleo is it's a product that believes in distributed decisions. It believes in setting people up for success rather than micromanaging them. And that is certainly something that we took away from, from being a part of an early stage technology company like TradeShift. Okay, that's very interesting. And diving into your and, and Nico's path to founding a company together, first of all, it seems like you had quite traditional textbook complementing skills. So Nico is technical and you had been a CFO, so you had pretty personal knowledge of the problem space you're working on. But beyond that, what were the other things that convinced you that you're perfect co-founders? Like what needs to be true beyond skill sets for two people to be great co-founders? For me, it was important that I connected with my co-founder on a personal level and having known Nico from TradeShift, having moved to San Francisco together, he was a person that I was very comfortable with. And I knew that we shared similar 
personal values. We shared similar people values when it came to which kind of people were we excited about working with? Who would we invite into Pleo? How would we lead them? We were having very shared thinking there, and I think that was super helpful. And then we respected each other in such a way that I would leave him pretty much alone on his stuff, and he would leave me alone on my stuff, and still we would come together on the things that needed that. Okay, that's very interesting. Do you think it would have been possible for you to successfully found a company with someone who you didn't have that depth of shared experience with? Would you have been ready to pick a random co-founder off the street, spend two weeks hacking together and be like, okay, this, this is the person? I think I would, but I do think it would have been somewhat more risky because the relationship might take turns and in, in an unpredictable way. I think in any case, I would recommend to spend a lot of time in the beginning, go to a cabin somewhere, spend two weeks, not only on the product and the company, but also on discussing other subjects around people and see if you have commonalities. That's very interesting. All right. And uh, let's then talk about everything that it took to take Plio from sort of founding to, to product market fit. And let's start with, you mentioned that you and Nika from the very beginning, you had your own domains and you trusted the other ones to complete their domain fairly independently. So can you just very concretely tell me, like, what did you spend the first year of Plio doing and what did Nika spend the first year doing? So you can say I was covering everything on the business side and Nico was covering everything on the technology side. I think what we shared in the middle was like building the company and the organization and the product. Because although that I was not a product person and actually Nico was not a product person, we both had experiences in the problem space. Me, most significantly as a former CFO, a former company owner, you know, so I could look through the product and the problem space through a lot of different lenses. And so could Nico. So you could say the product road mapping, spending time with the customers, figuring out what pain points to solve, in which way to solve it, was something that we, we shared. And then Nico was building up the tech team. He was setting up infrastructure and all the design choices around architecture and software language, that kind of stuff. I was doing other stuff like fundraising and strategy plans and investor decks. Okay, I'm curious, what would be your advice for a very early stage founder who is running their first customer interviews? Like who should you contact and what specifically should you ask them about? You, you need to understand what kind of personas are involved in the problem space you're solving for. And I think you need to talk to all of those different personas. I think you need to go deep on that problem space and be a little bit careful asking very leading questions and making them come up with the solution. Rather, just try to understand the problem and then you need to come up with a solution. And then you can go back a second time and you can actually present different varieties of the solution and maybe get a little bit of more juice out of those conversations. But I would never, I would at least be very careful building what you're asked to build because I don't think that's going to give you the distinction in the market that is needed to create a successful company. And lastly, before I let you off the hook on this topic, should you go into those conversations like with a deck or with something you're showing people? Or is it just a coffee table conversation? I think you definitely need to go into the conversation very prepared. And that early on can be, you know, topics you want to cover and interview notes that you want to go back and convey to the team. Later on, it can be sharing a few concepts. So definitely prepared. 
Okay, makes a lot of sense. So let's switch gears and let's talk about progress in the early days. We now know that Plio has become this incredible success story, but I'm curious to hear what the early part of that trajectory looked like. So what was the most important milestone that you reached in the first week, the first month and the first year of Plio? That's a really good question. When you say the first week, I'm starting to think what was the first <laughs> week and, and how to cut the starting time here. I think the first week it was about me and Nico looking each other in our eyes and just knowing we're going to do this. And then there was a little bit of hygiene around that in, in terms of how are we going to do this financially and all the paperwork and stuff like that. I think the first week was a lot about that. And then your second question was in the first month. First month was about narrowing down on the problem space and the anticipated solution. Yeah, so I'd like to think that we knew the problem space pretty well, but we didn't settle with that, to be honest. We actually talked a lot with the customers before we even produced a line of code. And the first, the first person we brought on board to the team was Nico's wife, and she was doing only user research together with me. We were doing 50, 100 deep customer interviews early on, you could say A, to validate the problem, that was expected, but B, also to understand how to prioritize in terms of which problems to solve for first. C, to figure out, should we launch this in Denmark or should we launch it in some other country? D, test out what are the customers willing to pay for this kind of stuff. So there was a number of other things that we were getting from those conversations other than just reconfirming that there was a problem. How about the first year? The first year, I would have loved to say that getting the first customer live and all of that good stuff, I do think we made it within a year, but it definitely took a little longer for us because we were a financial services company and there was a lot of licensing and stuff like that needed to happen. But I would say after 12 months, we were alpha testing the product with a handful of, of customers and that was an important milestone. Okay. And then I'm also curious to know when you raised your first round of funding and why. First fundraise. So given that we, we were a financial services company and, the, and bringing a product to the market was not just code, uh, it was also license fees and stuff like that. And it required, I would say, a slightly bigger team that you would normally see in software. We had to raise money fairly early on, which wasn't so difficult, but it was expensive in terms of dilution because we didn't have much at the time and we couldn't show much at the time. So we raised money around three months after narrowing down on the idea. And I would say for the first three years, fundraising was a constant. Not that we were actively fundraising, but we were always having conversations and thinking about, should we take in a bit of more money now or wait four months, that kind of thing. And then we got into the motion of like more like a bi-yearly cycle. I want to jump on that with one question, which is some of the fairly promising early stage founders that I know say that they often feel like their investors knocking on their doors all the time, wishing for like a bi-monthly update and so on. So do you have advice on how you should structure or time the way you talk with investors early on so it doesn't become a time hog? Yeah, it's a tricky one. You need to decide when should I spend time and how much time should I spend? And our approach to that has been that we've been fairly silent and hips down in between rounds. And we have, we have simply declined uh, having conversations in between rounds. And 
I think the flip side of that is that you lose a little bit the pulse with the market. The positive side is your ability to focus, but also you you build up a momentum across the investors where they crave a little bit for getting to meet you. And mm-hmm. like they know that when you are then out racing, that you're ready and there's a little bit of FOMO. So I think you need to give them the sense that you're a hot asset and you need to move fast and you need to be brave. If you come up and they sense that you're available all the time and you'll have conversations and you're willing to take in money and stuff like that, they smell that you're not a hot asset. That's just a part of it. I buy that. Okay, and lastly, on on the topic of fundraising, which is I read an article that Sifted wrote about Plio when you had raised your Series B. And at that time, you said you raised your Series B having not spent a single dime of your Series A. Why choose to raise this much sort of upfront excess capital on the journey? I think there are several dimensions to that answer. One is, I think we are running stuff a little bit more conservatively in Plio, and we always have. We've done that, I think, because of the stage in our lives that Nico and I are in and I think our personal situations and families and all of that, which is, we really valued a good night's sleep, but also respecting our clients. We were dealing with company money. There's another obligation when you're in the financial space. I think also strategically, when you go to market, again, you are more attractive when you don't need to engage. And that's typically when you get the great offers. So I think some of the gain is by just being, you know, confident, being daring to say no, daring to ask for something higher. And that can make up for, let's say, six months of further progress. That actually does make sense. <laughs> uh, all right. And uh, the early days of a company are basically a single-minded exercise of getting to product market fit. And you want to get there as fast as possible with as little resources as possible. So it's uh, it's about finding focus. So there's some undertakings on the path to product market fit that you should have said no to, but you didn't. Some excess stuff that you ended up spending time on. Yeah. What we did early on, it's not like I regretted it a lot, but it was definitely lost time. We did know how to get to market. We had two ideas. One idea would be we would go to market directly to the customers. We would own the customer relationship and that was exciting. The other one was, no, we're going to go through distribution partners. We're going to go through corporate banks that have massive customer portfolios, but they don't have the product we have. And that's going to be a much more efficient way to market. And we didn't know what was the most efficient thing to do. I ended up spending quite a bit of time with a few banks on selling the product and the idea of distribution and partner agreements and negotiating and all of that stuff, realizing after a year that wasn't the most efficient thing to do. And then we zoomed in on going direct and we closed down all of those conversations. So you could say, looking back, I couldn't have guessed what was the right thing to do, but it was definitely time lost. And do you want to give a bit more flavor around that? Why was the most efficient, the best go-to-market directly to the consumer? I think, you know, we were learning along the way that, hey, the customers really wanted our products. They were responding to our marketing. They were onboarding and it was going pretty well for us. And whilst on the other track, we were seeing initial interest from the banks and conceptually they were very interested, but it also became political and it became a roadmap decision and it became slow moving and that just ended up not moving as fast. And I think worse than that, 
we felt out of control. We felt very much having to rely on someone else, which was uncomfortable when you have investors and you have money that is running out. So we were like, nah, we got our own customers and we got to, then we got our own, our own destiny. And that's how we zoomed in on that. Okay, makes sense. And perhaps lastly, on this topic of getting to product market fit, I just want to ask you plain and simple, like when did Plio reach product market fit according to your interpretation? And what were the like important realizations about the problem and product? I hate to say it, but we hit product market fit with the first customer. Okay. It was a weird one because the product was not at all complete. The onboarding was horrible. It was so obvious, the gaps in the product. We didn't even have a mobile app and we had no integrations and it was just so scrappy. But the thing was that the alternative was worse and it was so easy to be better than the alternative and it was so easy to convince the customer about the next few things coming that we had a high conversion rate early on. And that's how I define product market fit is like, do you have a good conversion rate when you go and speak with with leads? And we had a solid conversion rate. And that doesn't mean that our product was in any way complete or that we were proud of what we were selling, not at all. But the customers were very ready. I think that's probably a good definition of product market fit. And if the product was not complete, to what extent do you feel like you closed your early customers on a promise of a more complete product in the future? And to what extent was it that the initial use case you were satisfying was sufficient? I don't think that the experience early on was necessarily so satisfying, but it was still better than the alternative. So somehow we made them happy. And you know what our net promoter score that we started measuring early on, it was high from day one. And actually, although that the product is so much better today, we've had to keep up with the early days net promoter scores, simply also because expectations are uh, coming up sure. all the time. Very interesting. All right, so let's uh, switch gears. And here, I think I want to especially focus on you as a leader and the ways you've had to scale yourself. So let's start with what are you inherently better at than most founders? Oh, that's a good one. I think I've been very aware of my own limitations from early on. And a part of me for many years have seen that as a, as a negative that you know, I felt that I had limitations. But I think what it has done has been, it has instilled a culture in Playo together with Nico, where we were happy to rely on people around us. As founders, we've been quite enabling and quite trustful. And those have been deep values in our company. And we knew that we needed a strong team around us. And we knew that we needed to delegate the responsibility and believing that every time we hire a person, they will likely be experts on a subject matter more than us or they will be able to absorb pulses from customers or markets or technologies where we simply can't allocate mm-hmm. the time. So our starting point has always been who's the smartest person in the room to take this decision. And we have never defaulted to ourselves. There has been some things where we say, hey, we've got to take the decision here when it comes to the company direction or the direction of the product or the vision or stuff where we just felt, hey, we are the smartest person in the room or the one with the most data and the most context more mm-hmm. often than smart just simply because we've been around for a longer time. And also here, I think you can't be afraid of then cutting through and taking the decision and maybe letting someone down. You can't be afraid of that. And that's also how I've been away for four weeks now on paternity. And guess what? 
the team has done great without me. And that's awesome. So I think, you know, allowing yourself not to be involved in every single decision and not to become that bottleneck, I think is an important one. Makes sense. You already alluded to how Plio, both as a product and as a company, is founded on this notion of decentralized decision making. However, oftentimes when I talk to founders, the hardest thing in scaling your company for them personally is letting go of previous responsibilities, realizing that I can no longer weigh in on this thing, I need to give it away to an employee. So what have been the hardest things for you to give away as your team has scaled? The hardest thing for me to give away, and it's not been like something that I have felt that I gave away, it's been more like something that was taken away somehow. <laughs> but that was the intimacy with the entire organization. Because when we were 15 or 25 or even 40 or 60, we were one team and I knew every single person pretty well. <laughs> and I felt they knew, knew me. And you can try to scale that. And I've really tried to scale it just to keep a bit of that. But the reality is, as you grow, you you got to let go of that. How do you try and scale that? Do you regularly try and book lunches like down to a certain depth of the organization? Like, how can you scale personal intimacy yeah. in a company? You know, early on, I scaled it by just trying to expand my capacity, ensuring that I was in all interviews before we put out an offer. When that was not possible, I would at least meet them the first week when they joined for half an hour, reduce that to like 20 minutes, 10 minutes. I would send out personal videos to everyone. I would at least remember their name and just stretching it and stretching it. And today I just can't do much on a one-to-one -one level just because it's just too many. You know, we had 110 people starting here in, in May. So I think now it's more for me to say, hey, I want to be available and I want to get the pulse of the organization across all levels and all areas. I do not want to be the CEO that hears and understands everything through my management team. I think that's one of the biggest sources of a disconnect. So we'll be going to our Madrid and Berlin office and I'm looking forward to having one-on-ones for the different people from the teams and understand that I can not do everyone, but I will spread it out across levels. I love, you know, our social events, the, the random chats I'm having with the folks. Okay. Yeah, may, may, makes sense. So a common aphorism that I think comments, at least in part, on, on some of what you said is that companies need a different CEO for each stage of growth. And so if a company has the same CEO, that person needs to adapt to these stages of growth. So in your mind, what have those distinct phases as a CEO been? And what are the most important ways in which you have adapted? There are definitely phases and I haven't done much thought work into sort of breaking them up and giving them a name, but I would definitely say, you know, the first phase, it's a very execution oriented phase where you are involved in everything and you output and you output. At the same time, I think the whole building the team phase starts and overlaps and there is a phase around figuring out really the vision, the strategy, the identity, and really being able to communicate that to the company and start to build that brand externally and, and make yourself accountable for that. There is the stage where you really need to build your senior leadership team 360. And I think for me, that has been the last two years. And today I have a complete 360 leadership team and I'm not an interim anything anymore. And I don't know what, what to call the current state today. I think today is about really making yourself obsolete. And you will probably never be, but that is the end goal. That's interesting. 
Okay, and then speaking to the culture at Plio, on your LinkedIn, you said something which resonated. So you said, building a product in the spirit of transparency, trust, and delegation has encouraged us to look at organizational structures differently and to offer employee experiences that are simple and scalable. And I found this interesting. What is a simple and scalable employee experience at Plio? I think for us, the scalability comes with delegation. We're very aware that at the pace at which we're moving, at the pace at which the market and the technologies are moving, we cannot keep up and we cannot front run this centrally and top down. And that's also why I'm describing the structure where we have business outcomes grouped around the business with distinct leaders and leadership teams of each one of them. And that waterfalls into teams that also have outcomes and leaders in the teams and individuals. We really just believe that Everyone needs to be able to identify themselves with the direction of the company and they need to know what they are accountable for and what kind of impact they are having and they need to be able to measure it. And with the kind of people we hire, I think that is very strongly linked to the engagement as well because people want to have an impact. They want to be recognized. They want to be proud. They want to grow. And that's what we need to ensure as senior leadership team. Let's finish up with uh, with three quick questions that I find fascinating. So obviously, Plio has come very far. And right now, it's hard to see how the ultimate end result of the company, like the exit of the company, wouldn't be successful. But I still want to know, what is the most likely way in which Plio could still fail? And how likely is it? I'm aware that a podcast can last for years, but in the past two, three months, the SaaS public stock market has crashed quite a bit. And I think the sentiment in the market has driven towards more scrutiny on how much you're growing and how efficiently you're growing. And the consequences of not growing efficiently is is higher and more devastating than it, it used to be. So I think that is something that we focus a lot on in Pleo is that, hey, we don't only need to deliver growth, we need to deliver a lot of growth and we need to do it in an efficient way. And I think, you know, we are hiring and we are investing a lot because we raised 350 million last year and we want to put that to work. But there's a risk that, that we are not going to see the returns that we thought because we are betting we are going out of comfort and that can be harmful. So I think that's something that we really point a lot of attention on these days. Thank you. That felt like a very candid answer. Okay, well, you've just come back from paternity leave. So let's take a normal week when you wouldn't have done that. If you showed me your calendar from that week, what about your usage of time would I find most surprising? Well, I don't know what you would find surprising, (laughs) but you may found it surprising that for the past year, I have taken half Fridays with my daughter. I have for the past few months taken an hour on Tuesday for a lunch run. And I think that might be the two most surprising things. Those are surprising things, definitely. So time for exercise and family, even as a unicorn founder CEO. Lastly, and this is a question we end all podcast episodes with, what is an important truth about building companies that most people would disagree with you on? What would most people disagree with? I think there has been a narrative that successful founders need to work 80 hours a week plus. And I do think that's the case sometimes. And I do think that particularly 
young founders would need somehow to put in more effort because there's just a lot of stuff they cannot foresee. But it's not a sole truth. It's certainly not how I have spent my time. It's not that I feel that I haven't worked a ton. I have, but there's been time in the office executing, having meetings way below that. I think what has been the toughest part has been the mental load. It has been the thinking time and the dinner discussions with my wife around people dynamics and stuff like that. So at the end of the day, I think, you know, I'm not going to hide it. It is tough to be a founder, but that 80 hour work week, it doesn't have to be like that. You can create a lot of flexibility family wise and stuff like that, but do expect mental load. I hope hundreds of first estate founders will be inspired and guided by that wisdom. And that is a great point to end on as well. So thank you so much, Jeppe, for joining. Thank you for having me. It's been fun.